Hello and welcome to the Sonic Cinema Podcast. My name is Brian Scuttle. Thank you for joining me at www.sonic-cinema.com as well as the Sonic Cinema Podcast YouTube channel. We continue on with the class of 1999 with one of the big, um, most critically acclaimed movies of the year. It was nominated for several Oscars. Did not win any, unfortunately, even though probably should have and it is Michael Mann's The Insider and joining me to discuss it today is uh, an actor who I found the podcast before we discussed American Beauty earlier this year which was a big Oscar winner and um, please join me in welcoming Timothy Cox back to the podcast thank you very much for uh, joining me again thank you Brian happy to be back so I remember first seeing The Insider shortly before the Oscars in 2000. My grand, I saw it with my grandfather, who uh, was big into movies, and we saw a lot of movies together. And he he come down during my uh, uh, my uh, spring spring break um, in college, and so we. You know, we were. I was off school, so it's like we went to some movies together while my parents worked, and the inside of one of those. And I remember being really taken by the movie. I thought it was a really terrific film. Um, I, at the time, uh, I will have said that it won all of the Oscars. That I, I, at, in the end, I will have said the Oscars were right at the time about the choices it made. Now I'm not so sure. Um, especially going through some of the films of 99, I uh, definitely feel differently about a lot of them. them. And the thing that I think is most interesting about the film is when you look at it through the prism of Michael Mann's career. Because on the one hand, it's outside of the realm of what we associate with Michael Mann, but on the other hand, it's also, stylistically speaking, something that's very reminiscent of Heat and even Collateral. And oh, definitely. Advice, stylistically speaking. Absolutely. I mean, all of Michael Mann's films have a certain stamp. I mean, the visual style, um, the always, I mean, he always acquires like the best uh, screenwriters and the, the cast that he always assembles. I mean, Heat alone, it's just like a who's who of just great character actors. The same thing here in The Insider. Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, we could just... Well, we could do a whole episode alone on Bruce <laughs> McGill's memorable scene yeah. where he just chews out Wings Hauser. And uh, mm-hmm. I, re- I remember, like, when I saw that scene, I was like, oh, my God. Like, <laughs> I, I, I remember cheering him on because, you know, Bruce McGill is an actor who's been around for a while. And, uh, I mean, most of the audience probably knows him as D-Day from Animal House. But yeah. this, you know, like, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forgot. But, well, like he's had like this very long and distinguished career, but this was the movie, and I think he's in like only one or two scenes. But man, and but that's Michael Mann's films, like John Voight popping up briefly in Heat, or uh, you know William Fincher, and I mean it's just who's who. That's always when you watch a a Michael Mann film, you know you're going to get that quality of performance, yeah. visual style, writing, detailed. He is very very detailed as far as like the story he tells and how he tells it and trying to keep it as accurate as possible. I mean, I know 
Mr. Wallace was not thrilled, I don't think, with his de depiction no. in the movie. He, I, I Christopher Plummer's performance he had praise for, but not for the, the depiction in the screenplay. Yeah. But, of course, we'll get into that more. Mm -hmm. Definitely. No, and I, I, the first thing I wrote down while I was taking notes on the movie was the just looking at the opening credits and just seeing the cast. I mean, yeah. a lot of people, like, you remember Al Pacino, you remember Russell Crowe, you remember Christopher Plummer. Those are the three main pillars of the narrative, but then you also have Diane Vernoa, Vernora. Steven, Steven Tobolowski, Philip Bill, Baker Hall. Lindsay I mean, Rip Torn. Oh, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. Just so I mean, it's people. just, uh, well, and like even, you know, you got Wings Hauser in there. Mm -hmm. uh, I mean, there's so many. Uh, Gina Gershon. I mean, like, you know, it's really. Michael and Gander everybody. Is in there. Uh, like before. Michael Gander. Like before, I before Harry Potter, yeah. As Dumbledore, like he was, he's in here as uh, Thomas Sandifer Box, yeah. Lost, and it's it's just one scene, and oh my god, he is so chilling in the movie scene because it's like you know exactly what he's saying, and but you also get the impression that like Jeffrey Wigand is not. The way Russell Crowe plays Wigand, he's very in, he's very introverted, he's very intellectual, but he, it also feels like he doesn't necessarily get, understand social cues to a certain extent. <laughs> so you also kind of wonder how much he's, you, you do kind of get the feeling he gets what um, Gammon's character is saying to him in that one scene, where he's basically changing the, arrangement of his uh non NDA. Yeah. But at the same time, it's it's such a chilling performance and it's like it blows my mind the fact that like four years before he played Dumbledore, it's like, yeah, Michael Gammon is pretty pretty intense in this movie. Well, but. it's just a testament. I mean, Michael Gambon, you know, for people who don't know, he's one of the most distinguished actors in the English-speaking language. He, yeah. you know, worked Royal Shakespeare. And, I mean, like, like Ian McKellen, like he was an actor who, you know, was discovered in movies uh, later in his life. He played LBJ in, memorably in Path to War. And just, uh, yeah, he, I mean, that's the thing is, like, these actors, they come on, actors like him and Rip Torn and Philip Baker Hall, Stephen Tobolowsky, Gina Gershon, Diane Venora, Lindsay Krauss, they all come on and score their points. And I think yeah. that's a test, because they all want to work with Michael Mann, because they know mm -hmm. that his movies are of a certain quality that they're, that how many filmmakers can, other filmmakers can kind of uh, copy and capture. Yeah. And so we'll, we, we've sort of danced around the uh, story, um, this story up until this point. The, the story, if you're not familiar with The Insider and you're listening to this, is the story of uh, a very famous um, segment that Mike Wallace and producer Lowell Bergman did on Jeffrey Wigand for 60 Minutes back in the 90s. And... What Jeffrey Wigand and Jeffrey Wigand had worked in the tobacco industry, one of the big tobacco uh, companies, Brown and Williamson, and he is basically he's basically blowing the whistle on big tobacco and saying no, they're well aware of what they're doing. They're 
chemically modifying cigarettes for the purpose of an addiction to nicotine. And uh, he, he's basically blowing the whistle on this. And the big, one of the big, the big drama in the film is the producers of 60 Minutes and Mike Wallace trying to get around a non-disclosure agreement that Wyland has been forced to sign that may result in legal action against both Wigand and 60 Minutes and CBS. Mm -hmm. And CBS ended up pulling the story for time, the segment for the time because of the fact that uh, a lawsuit lawsuit was threatened and um, basically Wigand's life was ruined by this because Bergman was behind him. Wallace, as we sort of hinted at, was not terribly pleased with his uh, characterization in this movie because... That he was kind of on the fence, yeah. Yeah, it looks like he's more on the fence than he really was. Um, But eventually they did air it uh, for... I can't remember why they ended up being able to... Aired. I thought it was one, something to do with one of the lawsuits. I don't know if they, I, if I remember correctly, I think they edited, uh, aired an edited, heavily edited version, yeah. which I think Bergman was completely against. And, yeah. uh, but I think just getting the story out there, I mean, uh, mm-hmm. even in whatever version, but the, but the sad fact is, I don't know if it really changed anything. No. Because cigarettes now are still a, you know, billion dollar a year business, and uh, yeah. people are still smoking them. Mm-hmm. But uh, Al-, Al Pacino plays Lowell Bergman, and one of the things I love about Al Pacino in this movie is he's so very different from oh, yeah. the Al Pacino that we had seen in films like Heat, films like The Devil's Advocate, sort of the actor that Pacino had sort of become as far as sort of this great over-actor in his later, you know, at this point, in this point in Junction, his career, it's a very different performance from him, but it's it's very more, it's much more subdued. It's much yeah. more, it still has those moments of high, you know, going for the rafters acting, but there's something more subtle about him. And he's honestly playing, like, He's playing a character that is very unlike any character that I feel like we've seen him in before. Well, I think this, you know, I said, you know, briefly, I think this is the last really great feature film performance that Pacino has given. I mean, he's done some wonderful work on television. His work as Jack Kevorkian and You mm-hmm. Don't Know Jack uh, is outstanding. Uh, you know, of course, uh, The Paterno, uh, yeah. but uh, Angels in America... But at this, yeah, it's true. I, he's never played a character like this. Like he's passionate, but there's no, there's no hoo haing in this one. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, I mean, he has. I mean, there's so many wonderful scenes that he has in the film. Like basically, you know, when he, uh, you know, basically tells off CBS and said, "Are you a new like? Uh, are you a newsman or are you a businessman? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, fighting for the ethics of, of journalism." Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and that's and and that's one of the great things I think about the character and about Pacino in the character is the fact that 
it is very outside of the realm of what we're used to with Pacino, and but also feels very much in character for Pacino to play this role. Oh, because sure. Because he is he is a character. He's in a way he's sort of he he is sort of like the uh, the cop you played in Heat, where it's like he's he's he he has obsessive. Very, he's he's very obsessive. He's very by the book. He he isn't afraid to go by the book, but he also isn't afraid to tear the book out if uh, if he feels like he uh, needs to to get done what he needs to get done. Well, it's like you know he says to Philip Bickerhall, "You pay me to go out and get stories like this," and he does it. And when he delivers mm-hmm. Don Don Hewitt as and. And, you know, uh, got Eric, uh, that I think who Stephen Tobolowsky plays, they kind of cave because they know that Brian Williamson, the biggest tobacco company in the world, mm-hmm. is going to sue 60 Minutes. Yeah. And, you know, in, in, in Lowell Bergman's eyes, he's like, bring it on. Because yeah. the moment... But, uh, no, it's a... Uh, I return to it. I probably hadn't watched it in about a decade. And it's it's an extraordinary film. I mean, it's it's... Mm-hmm. I would think, yeah, I think now, because, yeah, it did not scoop up any Academy Award nominations, or uh, Academy Award wins, I should yeah. say, because that was the year of American Beauty. Yeah. And I think now people look at American Beauty a little differently. I mean, it's still a marvelous film, but I think people mm-hmm. may look at it a little differently. But um, the thing that about the um, the insider that's still extraordinary is that it is still very, very, very relevant. It is aged well. Yeah, it. Uh, I think every performance in the film is spot on. The visual style, all of that is just it's 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 a stunning movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I I think you know and I I agree. I mean, we talked about American Beauty earlier in the year, and it is still a wonderful film. Still holds up very well. Held up much better than I expected to necessarily, given the uh, recent past uh, revelations when it comes to Kevin Spacey. But at the same time, I look at something like The Insider, and I I do feel like, to a certain extent, that Russell Crowe probably should have won this over Kevin Spacey. I mean, he ended up winning the next year for Gladiator, which most people, you know, it's like most people looked at that win and, like, sort of as a retroactive uh, victory, you know, sort of honoring him for his work in The Insider. Right, yeah, because, and the Academy does that. You know, yeah, Gladiator is it's a good film, and Russell Crowe is very good in it. But you know, it's, I, it's I not the Insider. <laughs> no, it's not the Insider, and it's certainly not this performance. Um, no, his, no, him as Wygand. I mean, this is this is a great character actor performance. This is a is it you know it it's not really a movie star role. Like Pacino's got the movie star role. Mm-hmm. He's got the very showy role. Russell Crowe is the character actor role, and it's one of those. And he's just so the way he he brings Wigan's paranoia and internal uh, the the struggle that he's feeling. He do, he doesn't have struggles with telling his story. He just understands that there's danger. He, he does understand that there are dangers 
in at every turn story he, oh, he, yeah. doesn't, he doesn't necessarily question himself in whether he whether it's the right thing to do to tell this story he knows it, it's all about really like what he is willing to lose i mean yeah. you know uh, his 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 life is put in danger his family's life is put in danger um i i think probably the thing that is least the least concern is being sued yeah uh, but I think the fact that, uh, you know, that his life is being threatened and that of his family, mm -hmm. that is really what's weighing on him. And he uh, one of the things that he does so brilliantly is he he underplays, yeah. which that's, I mean, that's I mean, that's a, the mark of like just a great performance because, you know, it's not a uh, I mean, Russell Crowe at the time was a, you know, big strapping guy. And like, you know, this is someone who is the complete opposite of his persona, the tough guy persona is very. Yeah. You know, quiet, very thoughtful, very methodical. He's a scientist. So, um, no, he delivered brilliantly on that. I mean, there, and the fact that he has to, you know, carry um, a heavy load of uh, of the film with Al Pacino. I mean, that's yeah. that's pretty that's pretty heavy. I mean, I think this was probably one of the first movies that Russell Crowe. You know, he had done Quick and the Dead, he had done Virtuosity, he had done, but like to American audiences. This was really like one of his big introductions. I mean, L.A. Confidential before yeah. that as well. But this was really like his, uh, a big showcase for him, for yeah, American was, audiences. He, yeah, he was definitely still on the way up as as far as his, as far as his star moving on the rise. I mean, like you said, he did Futurosity, Virtuosity, Quick and the Dead, which are, you know, he's all right roles in, you know, smaller movies. And he got then, his feet wet in American movies after working in, uh, I think, New Zealand and Australia. Yeah. I mean, he was a star for many, many years uh, there, and he gave a number of wonderful performances. Yeah. Romper Stomper comes to mind. I think there was a movie he did where, I think it's The Sum of Us, uh, where he was he was absolutely brilliant in, but uh, no, but for American audiences, Quick and the Dead, Virtuosity, LA Confidential especially, because, uh, yeah. and then of course it led to uh, to this and to everything else that's happened since. Yeah. Yeah, and LA Confidential was definitely sort of, even though with those earlier films, LA Confidential was really the ones that, one that I think audiences, American audiences really took notice of them in. And then, like you said, because this one, he had The Insider, he had Gladiator, and then he had Beautiful Mind. Mm -hmm. And then from there, it's been after that. Master and Commander and everything yeah. that. And then, and of course, I just finished watching The Loudest Voice where he played Roger Ailes. I, oh, think, wow. that's, I think that's the best performance he's given since The Insider. Okay. Like just, I mean, of course... Unlike Jeffrey Wigand, Roger Ailes was not a quiet, shy <laughs> guy. I mean, Roger Ailes was big, bombastic. I mean, but uh, like just so he has such he has this ability to like really put you on edge, like and, and to fully whether the character is likable or not to really just he takes you along for a ride. And it's I mean, there are the portions of the loudest voice like that are a little difficult to watch. But uh, no, he's he's outstanding in the part, okay. like yeah. like his performance in, in Jeffrey Wigan as, as Jeffrey Wigan. But uh... mm -hmm. no, and and the fact of the matter, and the thing that is great about this movie is that it does because of the fact that 
uh, Jeffrey's wife leaves him at a certain point in the film, the the stakes for him, I mean, yes, his his family's safety is still important to him, but they're a way they they remove themselves from the equation, right? To a certain extent, so the stakes basically shift for him because originally mm-hmm. the main stakes involve uh, him making sure he can maintain his health insurance that is non-disclosure for his, allowed yeah, for, for, for his daughter, daughter, yeah. And then, so, and so then, but once, once his wife leaves, it's basically a matter of, okay, are we actually going to, are we actually going to do this? And then the next big point in the story is, well, is CBS going to air it? Right. And the way that the, it's, it's really kind of a puzzle. It's like if one one challenge is arises, then another, then another, then another. They're all, but they don't feel like very traditional story beats, and that's the thing that's really great about the way um, Michael Mann, Eric Roth, the screenwriters, tell this story. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. No, I mean, you know, told in the style. I mean, if you were going to take put this movie up there with like an All the President's Men, as far as like building the suspense and just taking you on the ride of like when you think this is going to happen, that happens. Yeah. Um, they just movies like this only come along every once in a while. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this and this really and that comparison with All the President's Men is really appropriate because it's it's sort of the next. It's a next generation version of All the President's Men in the sense that here, okay, All the President's Men has the challenges of journalism in the 70s and political, you know, how to uh, talk about political corruption. This one is about corporate corruption and what that means and what challenges that the uh, the journalism what challenges journalism faces with regards to that especially television journalism well and think about where we are right now with political and corporate corruption uh, oh, you know you get every news every day so I wonder you know you almost wish someone like Mike Wallace were still around because yeah. he would he would have a he would have a field day with this you know, and it's funny because of the fact that, like, we, I, I gotten this to uh, watch shortly after uh, watching the uh, documentary on Mike Wallace, and so it's like having having this in my, having that documentary and who he was and sort of his recounting of things like the Wigand situation in that was was really kind of helpful and made you appreciate the type of journalist that Mike Wallace was. But one of the things that I think is interesting about that documentary is that there are also times where, you know, Mike Wallace, like there's a scene, there's an interview in the documentary with Mike Wallace where he's interviewing Bill O'Reilly. And O'Reilly basically says, well, it's like, I'm, I'm basically doing, I'm basically following in your footsteps. Uh-huh. How I... I, I mean that's not entirely true, but also is kind of true in the way of so how, a little bit, yeah, and how Mike Wallace uh, did things, and 
that's one of the things we see early on in The Insider because the, the film doesn't start with it do, it's not exclusively about Jeffrey Wigand's um story. It starts out with um Well Bergman and Yeah, Bergman going to uh try to set up an interview with the uh, Grand Ayatollah and uh basically seeing bits of that interview with Wallace played by the great Christopher Plummer, you you get the sense of this is who Lowell Bergman is and this is Mike who Mike Wallace is. Yeah. And these are gonna be the main these are gonna be two thirds of the story that you're telling, and this is why this story is going to see having these two people at the center of the story is part of what is going to grab you about this story. Well, and also, you know, you get a sense right in that opening scene that of what made those two guys work together so well and what made has made 60 Minutes yeah. so successful. I think now 60 Minutes has kind of lost the, uh, I mean, it's still entertaining, it still has, but it, it kind of lost that the edge yeah. that it had when Ed Bradley and uh, Mike Wallace, uh, you know, were kind of the guys leading the charge in many ways mm -hmm. well and especially since now so much other so many so much other news programs basically are going after the same type of journalism that 60 minutes pioneered um it it kind of it makes sense in that way but also it makes sense to the fact that once those guys were retired or passed away, it's like it was almost inevitable that 60 Minutes was not going to be the powerhouse that was at its heyday. Well, it's different now because, and I don't know if, you know, I mean, a, I mean, a lot can be said. We could just have a discussion about journalism alone <laughs> in, in regards to this film, but of how journalism has changed, of yep. what producers will put on the air like yep. you know if without thinking about lawsuits or things like that putting it on the air because if if it's controversial it equals people are going to be watching it yeah it's why everyone always wonders you know whenever bill maher has a show on why he would have ann coulter on the show ann coulter is universally disliked by many but bill maher is a smart guy he knows it's going to equal ratings mm -hmm. he's so it's kind of like i think that's the way a lot of uh TV shows, news shows are these days. They're going to have someone on that it's like, okay, this is a controversial figure. They're going to get into arguments, but people are going to be glued. Right. I think 60 Minutes back at that time, like, you know, Don Hewitt and Lowell Bergman, less about controversy and in doing the right thing and telling this story that needed to be told. I mean, it's a safety, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's not just for... It's a public safety issue. Oh, sure. It's a public health issue. But I mean, you know, the thing is, it's like I don't know about I don't know about skirting controversy. I mean, I think if if controversy came with the story, I don't think they were necessarily. I think they were up to the challenge of that. And this particular story with Jeffrey Wigand, because of all the different uh, mechanisms in place, because a you're going after big tobacco. B, you have Jeffrey Wigand's non-disclosure agreement. How much can he really legally say without getting sued? What happens if we publish, post this? Like you, 
like you said, it's like there's a real legitimate threat of getting sued here. That that's why they push. That's why they pulled the the original piece. Yeah. Because and it's like no, we we can't have this heat on, and it was probably the, and it it was certainly probably the biggest mistake that sixty minutes ever made. Mm-hmm. Because, because of the fact that it, you once you once a news organization like this caves on a story like this for whatever reason, you know you 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 basically opened yourself up to people questioning your veracity as journalists. Period. Yeah. And I think that's the point that Lowell Bergman was trying to make. Yeah. It's like, if we're not going to go ahead with this story, what are we doing here? Yeah. Like, what are we, are we going to, you know, nitpick? Well, we're going to go after this guy because, but it's kind of like, this is what Edward R. Murrow and all of the great news people, this is, this is why they became newscasters. They yeah. get out there and they find the stories that, that might, it might, to expose mm-hmm. because it, you know, because it's, it's, you know, in this case, especially it's public health, Edward R. Murrow, it was um, McCarthyism and, you know, Mike Wallace. I mean, he had, he even says in the movie, you know, he's, he's made like little strides, like, you know, with Sadat and uh, the Ayatollah and people like that. It's a, uh, it's a responsibility. It's what they're, it's what they're paid to do. Yeah. And also, I am, I mean, the thing is, it's like once, um, the narrative for this movie is just so it it's so fascinating to watch this n- narrative move because of the fact that it is a very on the one hand it's it is very con- structurally very much a to b to c mm-hmm. but the way it goes about it there's so many other different subplots and areas that it goes in cuz you have this you have Bergman basically um Gang involved with the uh, district attorney of Louisiana at one point in a lawsuit that they have against Big Tobacco, and the reason for that is they think that if Weigand testifies in that um, lawsuit under oath, that basically negates his non-disclosure agreement. So then we can air our piece on Weigand. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's a whole different part of the equation that just adds a little bit more complexity to what's already a very complex story. Oh yeah. Now and just watching it all unravel, um, you know, like just in that way is is it's extraordinary. It's what makes a good movie. I mean, mm-hmm. like th- this is it's a genuine suspense film it but i mean there's yeah. i don't recall i don't think there's any violence or anything like that but this is i mean this is the kind of movie that alan pakula you know who did clute and all the president's men and the parallax view and things like that what and throughout the 70s those it made what made those kinds of movies so great and movies that still hold up yeah. now given in the wake of our political and uh climate now um i would wonder i wonder if you know, if Mike Mike Wallace and Ed Bradley and you know all of them, you know, 
how they what they would make of of everything that's going on right now. Yeah, I mean that that was the thing that was most striking to me about uh, the uh, Mike Wallace documentary. documentary was I I couldn't help but think of well what would Mike Wall how would Mike Wallace feel about what he's seeing right now? Because well, news would, how would he work to combat it? Well, news reporting is so different now. Yeah. Everything is – it's not even news. It's tweets. Yeah. Um, and someone, you know, uh, Tammy or Tony Lauren or whoever her name is, like the, she just comes out with something once a week that's nasty and yeah. you know, or says something against this. And she calls herself a journalist. Mm-hmm. She's not a journalist. She's a, she's a tweeter. She's an angry tweeter. Yeah. Uh, you know, that's – Tweeting is not journalism. Uh, I think, you know, journalism, it's in this day and age, it's so hard to determine what journalism really is because of the way we get our news. Mm -hmm. I mean, I mean, when six, I mean, 60 minutes all through the 70s, 80s and the 90s, it was always number one in the Nielsen ratings because every Sunday night you had to sit and watch it with your family. And I would watch it with my family. I didn't always understand what was going on or what they were talking about, but it was always, you knew for that, that hour that it was going to be arresting and that like, it would always have something that was going to be, you know, keep you on the edge of your seat, something they would always interview a celebrity or a musician that was always funny, but also very uh, revealing. Like I, I would say 60 minutes, like, you know, as far as like celebrity interviews, we're always more revealing than someone like Robert Walters, like oh, Mike, yeah. Mike, like Mike Wallace or Ed, Ed Bradley, they wouldn't let you off the hook. Mm-hmm. And I think, and I think in this case, you're know, going back and watching the Weigand interview, Mike Wallace. And as they depicted in the movie, um, Mike Wallace said, do you regret coming forward? Yeah. And cause, and you could kind of see like the subtext really, it's like, do you know that, do you like if you had it to do over? And Jeffrey Wygant, of course, said, you know, it was the right thing to do, yeah. and it was. I mean, even if it put his life in danger, there is something about like not being able to sleep at night if you don't go for what is right, even if it does cost you your job, your family, your life. I mean, uh, you know, if, if if in this case, you know, hopefully his family understand. I don't know. Actually, I think he and his wife got divorced. I'm not 100 yeah, percent sure. Did. They yeah. did get and divorced. That's, yeah, that's something that starts throughout the uh, film. Yeah, that, that's something that starts in the uh, course of the film. Um, I mean, first, first they move away and then they get divorced. Right. Um, but yeah, and and the thing is, it's like this isn't it. It's you're you're absolutely right about this being a very suspenseful film. I mean, this is essentially a thriller. This is this is a real life thriller. And uh, even though, you know, it's it's one of those things where it's like, you know, it's it's based on true a true story, but the fact that we know how the true story ends doesn't make it any less dramatic. Because Not the fact that it happened, and yeah. That's why, and that's why uh, Michael Mann is so important because of the fact that he he is very much approaching this film in the same way he approached Manhunter or Heat or Miami Vice or Collateral where it's like it's it's a character study and also it it's there's a larger narrative being told than just yeah. oh it's it's very standard thriller no it's not it's 
there's a lot more going on here than uh, seems seems to be at start, and that's one of the things that's so great about it. Well, and you know, like Lowell Bergman says, and he says, you know, since when has the paragon of journalistic integrity have had you know an outside corporation or have had lawyers tell us what we're going to air and not air? I mean, yeah. because when that happens, I mean, there, I mean, I'm sure there are countless stories about. 45 that uh, news outlets want to air, you know, whether it's true or not. Mm -hmm. I mean, uh, but that's the thing is trying to sift through what is real and what is, I hesitate to use the phrase fake news, but like, uh, (laughs) but that's where we are. And I think this movie is a reminder of how people go out and get the news by going out there, putting their lives on the line, not just Jeffrey Wigand, but Mike Wallace and Lowell Bergman, because mm-hmm. it's it's life and death for for these guys. Because you know Jeffrey Wigand can't sleep at night if he doesn't go forward with the story, and Lowell Bergman can't sleep at night knowing that I could have done something to get this out there. I didn't do my job, and as yeah. and as how this is the impression I get from how Mike Wallace is portrayed is that he is concerned with his legacy. Yes. And I think that was the point of contention that Mike Wallace himself was unhappy with. Yeah. Um, which I, I think, you know, watching the documentary and knowing of what I have seen of Mike Wallace, I think there's a little bit of truth to that. I think for, for dramatic mm-hmm. effect, they did paint Plummer's Mike Wallace as a guy who was a little concerned with his integrity. Right. But when you but you watch the movie, but then you get to that scene where he chews out Gina Grishon and Stephen Stephen Tobolowsky. Yeah, I don't I don't think that necessarily makes up for anything, but at least you get the idea that ah, you know, legacy damn legacy be damned, that he does right. care about telling the story. But I think people at the time, you know, just wanted oh Mike Wallace has just got happy. I mean, no one's ever happy with. I mean, a living person <laughs> is portrayed how they really are. I mean. Uh, I mean, I'm sure the family of Roger Ailes isn't happy with how Russell Crowe mm-hmm. uh, has portrayed him. And I know John Lithgow has another Roger Ailes. He's playing Roger Ailes, I think, in an HBO movie. But mm-hmm. um, <laughs> no, but it is interesting, like just watching The Insider of just how news is reported, how it's researched and how, uh, you know, I'm not a journalist, I, but how everything has changed. Yeah. Like how, you know, my, I, I wonder how Mike Wallace would work in a Twitter world like like seeing Dan Rather on Twitter I mean uh, of course he's retired but Dan Rather he goes after 45 like everybody yeah. else yeah there, there's a kind of like well you know like this is the way things are now so uh, I mean it's I was saying to my in-laws recently I said I never thought I'd live in a time <laughs> where people could actually go on a social media outlet and tweet the president of the United States negative like not only just like directly but like you know negative stuff directly whether you like the president or not um it's just it's just the the way it's where we are it's a cycle of 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 nastiness that uh hopefully we get away from but uh well and the fact of the matter is it's like yeah you're absolutely right in that i i think you know wallace's 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 uh criticisms on uh the portrayal of him in this movie are are fair because like you said this is this is fundamentally done about for dramatic effect 
Well, and, and also the story was adapted. Roth, I think it was a Vanity Fair article that yeah. – and then before the uh, you know the news broadcast, and so Eric Roth and I think Michael Mann saw that, and they drew the screenplay from that. And then, of course, right. got I think they got cooperation from CBS or about as much cooperation as they probably <laughs> they wanted would, to give. Yeah. Yeah. And, well, and the thing is, it's like it, it occurred to me when you were talking that it's like basically what freed up because they did eventually many months later, they did eventually air the original version of the segment. Yeah. And it was because of the fact that basically the the smear campaign against Wygand was basically disproven as complete falsity. Mm-hmm. And so that that basically because that was really that was as much about why cbs backed off from it as anything because of the fact that the smear campaign campaign against wygan had started and they and it tarnished tarnished his reputation to mm-hmm. the point where it's like they weren't quite sure they weren't comfortable with him as the main voice on on this issue in, sure. In that way, but uh, obviously the lawsuit was another big part of it, and the money, the money involved, and stuff like that, because there was a merger that was possibly going to happen at some point. So yeah, there were a lot of different things, but yeah, I mean they did eventually air. I mean you, you shared with me the link to the original uh, mm-hmm. segment, which is it's extraordinary. Out. It is. It is. It's and, extraordinary. Yeah. You know, it's all it's a, it's also extraordinary to see how well Russell Crowe and Christopher Plummer get get how accurate they get Wygand and Wallace in that segment without doing an impersonation. Yeah. Like they don't do an impersonation of either of them. They bring their own interpretation as they are brilliant actors but also you do get the sense that uh, well and that's michael mann i mean that's an mm-hmm. example like it's well researched well detailed everything down to you know with what was on the in the background on bookcases i mean it's yeah. just it's what makes his movies uh, extraordinary mm-hmm. switching gears the one thing that i've always liked about michael mann's movies that are are his use of color Yes. If like uh, the use of color from Heat and from this film and Collateral and mm-hmm. Ali especially, and it the the what he uses it for is like shaping the tone of the film and of specific scenes. Yeah. And I've just and I've just always been blown away. He uses like in Heat with Robert De Niro. I recall he I think he used a lot of blues. Oh yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean like you know and all like in De Niro's uh, lone apartment, empty apartment, and just. And you just wonder how the the detailing of that. It just goes back to how how detailed and how he works with his editor and his cinematographer to yeah. capture that because it really does create oh, incredible no. I mean, mood. Uh, you, no, you 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 can tell uh, you can tell that the use of color and color grading and color and color grading is extremely important to uh, Michael Mann. I mean, like you said, blues and even blacks because. There's a lot of black and heat and part of it oh, yeah. of how much night shoots he how many night shoots he does. Mm. But yeah, and then you've got Collateral, which was the first one which he shot digitally. You have Miami Vice, which he was another step in that evolution for him as as a visual filmmaker. 
And I mean, yeah. you know, the movie Miami Vice is it's, it's okay, but you know, it's it's still a Michael Mann film, and it's still so it's still got some interest in there. Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, the whole time, I mean, I remember I missed Don Johnson, but uh, nothing against <laughs> Colin Farrell or Jamie Foxx. Yeah. But well, Miami Vice, when that came on, like that, that's an example of also Michael Mann was an innovator. I mean, when that show came on and when Crime Story came on, um, the shows had not been told like this, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in this kind of dramatic way, kind of a, I mean, around the same time that shows like Hill Street Blues were coming on where things were getting grittier, yeah. dirtier and not, and getting away from the kind of, okay, you know, uh, the cop series, you know, all right, in 45 minutes, the cop's going to find all of the evidence and find the killer at the end. Well, right. Michael Mann shows <laughs> and Hill Street Blues and all of that, you know, they delved more into the character. I mean, when we, we could talk about heat as well, but, and the same thing with Heat and The Insider is that you really get a sense of who these people are. Not only yeah. as not only Jeffrey Wigand as a scientist, as a father, as a husband, but as a person. Lowell Bergman, same thing. You get uh, and that both of them are actually very, very similar. They're both uh, obsessive in, in their ways. They're both uh, determined, stubborn. They bring out the best and probably the worst in each other because they know, but without but without both of them working together and their combative nature, this story wouldn't have been, the yeah. story wouldn't have happened. Yeah, and the thing and the thing about Bergman that's so interesting is the fact that he he started out as a uh, he he started out as an independent journalist. He wasn't always a big producer for sixty minutes. He he was mm-hmm. kind of a rebellious. A journalist and uh, for a long time and you get that you get that impression watching him but then there are other moments where it's like you see him talking with friends and stuff like that and they you know they they sort of you know in sort of you you see this rebellious nature about him and it's like he he would be somebody who you know he he's somebody like who would work for vice or he he would be an independent document well and something like he's that. who you want out there because yeah. you know uh the the thing that in that that scene that i referenced before where he's kind of telling off uh don hewitt and mm-hmm. uh eric cluster and wallace is sitting there it's you know, like you know you pay me to do this yeah. like you any other story you know you like attack get them this but the fact that it's a huge tobacco company looking, you know, to the threat of lawsuit, which is what, you know, 45 does every day, which scares people off. Yeah. But it's like, you know, Bergman's willing to call the bluff mm-hmm. and say we air, it's newsworthy. We air it. And, you know, but uh, the threat of lawsuit and even a big uh, I mean, I don't know if I mean, Brown and Williamson, they may have gone ahead with the lawsuit, but I think. Every newspaper probably, I don't know if they would have sided with 60 Minutes or CBS as a network, you know, or, yeah. I mean, it just, it would have made them, I, I would think it would have made Brown and Williamson look guilty. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's, that, that's definitely the case. Uh, we, we've touched on, uh, we, we touched on the visual style of the movie, the visual, la- the visual, uh, the way Michael Mann shoots the movie. I, I did want to bring up the way he uses music in the movies because that's, oh, yeah. that's always one of the most interesting things going to 
the music for Last of the Mohicans and Heat. Oh, yeah. Here in The Insider, you have Lisa Gerard, who uh, would be even more well-known later in the next year, working with Hans Zimmer and Gladiator. Mm -hmm. Uh, She was the vocalist on Gladiator and a bunch of other film scores. She's done a bunch of other stuff since then. And uh, uh, I can... Peter Bork is the co-composer on this. Mm-hmm. And um their 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 work is just so lovely in this and it's just such a uh it's such a great um evocative score that really gets to the emotional and suspenseful components of the movie. Well, you said it right there evocative. It, it's really I mean like all of uh, Michael Mann's films he has music that it just kind of underplays throughout like it's not big and flashy and uh, over the top but it does add along with the coloring and you know and the look of everything just adds to the uh, the mood um no it's what i mean that's what good uh, a good film score uh, should do i mean uh, it, it it just it elevates the tension it uh, then you know it helps move the story along and and if it's i'm a big uh, film score person if it's like i i'll listen to the heat score all of the time oh, because yeah. <laughs> you know you just you mean it's just it's so unique mm-hmm. like i mean it's it's just a single i think it's just a, like a, a piano chord like or two piano chords just Ding, 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 you know, that. And it's just... Uh, well, there, it's, there's, it, there's a lot of different musical uh, musical use in that movie because it's you, you've got score by... You've got score cues by Ellie Gunthal, who's a wonderful composer. Mm-hmm. You also have um, music from The Passengers, which was a project with U2 and Brian Eno... Uh, you have Brian Eno tracks, you have Moby tracks, you have a lot of different uh, music that he uses. He's somebody who, sort of like Ridley Scott, like his soundtracks very much, if there's not a single composer on it, it's something that he sort of like mixes and matches musical ideas for his Yeah, writing. He's sort of like Kubrick in that respect. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I mean, he's he's one that I've always been a fan of as far as film music. I've I've always loved that score. Um, it's uh, and with with here, I mean, there's so many other things that we could discuss about. I mean, we could, I mean, you could run down the list. I mean, we could go all day just on the actors, uh, the quality of the writing. Yeah, uh, Eric Roth and Michael Mann, just a, a, a solid script that is. Uh, it's it's fast paced. It's mm-hmm. I mean, of course, in the opening, I mean, like you know, the sequence, you know, there's it, it does find opportunities where it, you know little bits of humor can come in, you know, but yeah. the banter between Pacino and Christopher Plummer, of course, mm-hmm. because I think they bring out the best in each other as well. Um, now, I mean, you could, I mean, you could, you could look on the IMDb page and just go down the list of like the the actors that are in the movie. That it's just uh, and actors that might be in the film for you know, one scene or two scene or what have you, but they all score their points. And like I said, that that's really what I always take away. That's what I always look forward to when I watch a Michael Mann film. It's like, oh, who did he, who did he gather for this? Because it's, I mean, smart actor if they, uh, if they get into uh, one of his movies. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, and you look at he, I mean, he's got Al Pacino and Robert De Niro. He's got Val Kilmer. He's got Ashley Judd. Um, he's got 
Hank Azaria in a role. He's got John uh, Voight, William Finch, Tom, Tom Sizemore, oh. uh, Tom Noonan is in yeah. there. I oh, mean, he, Danny he, Trejo. Uh, yeah. Uh, oh God, I forgot Trejo was in Hen- there. Yeah. Henry Michael, Henry Rollins is even yeah. in it. I mean, Michael Henry Williams Rollins gets are, thrown no, through a window. Dennis Haysbird. Dennis Haysbird, Michael T. Williamson, yeah. Wes Studi, who yeah. um, uh, Ted Levine is in there. Uh, I mean, it's just you know goes on and on and on and on and on of just like uh, really really solid uh, cast. And yeah. of course, Diane Venora and uh, Xander Portman. Berkeley. Oh yeah, Natalie Portman, one of her yeah. early uh, film roles. Mm-hmm. Uh, God, that's coming up on twenty five years of that movie came out. I know, and it's and it's the same thing here. I mean. You know, you get a call from from Michael Mann to be in one of his movies. You don't care the part. And it's kind of like, you know, I, I would put Michael Mann up there, like, you know, as far as like the great ensemble like that Robert Altman would always uh, would always gather, you know, for many of his films. Like these are movies that like it doesn't matter the size of the part. You know, it's going to be yeah. good script. Everyone's going to have a chance to score their points and uh, and have uh, something nice to show for it. Yeah, and I had forgotten Eric Roth had uh, co-written the uh, script because of the fact that I I remember his name more from Forrest Gump, but I mean he did this. He he later co-wrote uh, Munich. Good Shepherd. For, or... Oh yeah, I forgot the Good Shepherd, but he also and he also co-wrote uh, Munich for Spielberg. Mm-hmm. So it's like he's he's done some really interesting. Uh, true story um, storytelling when it comes to uh, movies. So, I mean, it's not just the Oscar winners winning screamer or Forrest Gump. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's one of the more interesting things about this. Um, yeah, we, we were talking earlier about, um, we, we were talking about earlier that uh, Christopher Plummer did not get nominated for this, which I had forgotten about. Um, I'd forgotten he didn't get nominated for this. Um, he should have gotten nominated for this. I think at least <laughs> he, he, had, he had been nominated. I think he won a couple of the, the Boston uh, Film Critics Awards. And that's, but, why uh, that's why I was remembering. But this was the thing. This movie, I think, was the the jolt that Christopher Plummer's film career needed. I mean, Christopher Plummer, you know, he's one of the most distinguished stage film television actors uh, ever, but uh, the quality of some of his movies and not, you know, I mean, Hey, people got to pay the bills um, was not always, he wasn't always in great movies. Right. And this movie was like, I think after he did this, he just, it, it took off again. Yeah. And he's, and he's working. He's, I think he's working more now in films than he ever did. I mean, I'm sure prior to this, I mean, throughout the rest of all, most of his career, he's been best known as Captain Von Trapp, which I know that I think he's made his peace with now, but, (laughs) um, but like this, and he always had, he always had the talent and he was always memorable in any movie he did. It's just sometimes like a lot of actors, you know, sometimes the, the movies hits or misses, but Mm -hmm. I remember this one, I remember, like, there are several scenes that he's in, and I thought, well, at least he's going to get acknowledged with a nomination. Mm-hmm. And, like, uh, and he got it. I think he got, ended up getting his first one a couple of years later for the last station, and then he won yeah. for richly deserved for Beginners. Yeah, but, he was uh, wonderful in Beginners. Oh, yeah. So, 
But uh, yeah, and I wonder, you know, I wonder if part of the reason he didn't get nominated was how Mike Wallace felt about the movie. Ironically, that's possible. Because yeah, I mean, it, this this feels like it will have been a no brainer nomination because I mean, even in a year where like you look at the supporting actor category, it's pretty considerably stacked. Oh yeah. Like we we talked about best actor earlier this year with American Beauty. I mean, best supporting actor you had Haley Joel Osment, you had Michael Clark Duncan, you had um, Tom Tom Cruise, Cruise. Jude Law, I believe that was his first nomination for Talented Mr. Ripley, and and Michael Caine who yeah who won ended up winning, and it's like I he should have been nominated, but at the same time, I'm not entirely sure who I will. Have gotten rid of in that category maybe yeah Kane, I've, maybe michael kane i've never been a huge cider house rules fan mm-hmm. but i mean you know i i can't really argue with michael kane winning an oscar um <laughs> but uh yeah i mean it was it's one of those years where like this year was just very very rich when it came to uh movies and when it came to performances and that's and one of the most surprising things that i'm finding rewatching a lot of these movies the insider was certainly one where it's like you could make this movie now and i think it would connect even more oh yeah because because of the fact that because of the way the world's changed and you know it's like i rewatched election i think it was last week or the week before oh that's another good one it's funny because of the fact that it's like that that movie is brilliant when it comes to uh politics and the political satire nature of it but it's also a movie where it's like i wonder i also couldn't help but think that if it came out now i feel after the 2016 election if Critics might uh, criticize it for being a little too on the nose, and like, <laughs> yeah, you're 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 hitting it a little bit too hard. It's like, uh, no, they're not. <laughs> but well, it, um, it, it says yeah. something about uh, Alexander Payne with that movie is that he knew something was coming, like yeah. that kind of environment, that kind of culture of like, uh, you know, uh, a lot of a lot. Of, was it Tracy Fleck? Was that her Tracy name? Tracy Fleck. Oh uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, Tracy Flick. And uh but yeah, the the thing is it's like it's it's one of those things where I mean I and it's been ages since I've seen seen uh Citizen Ruth, his first film. But mm-hmm. I remember both of those just being really sharp on the nose political satires. I mean oh, yeah. we kind of got away from that. Like I mean, downsizing was kind of in that vein, but it's still, it wasn't as strong in terms of. No, I, I didn't think downsizing. I knew what downsizing was trying to do, but I don't think the film quite knew what it wanted to be. Yeah. Um, (laughs) and, uh, but like, you know, he got away from like, I mean, Nebraska, I think is just a wonderful, like just a great, great, great story. And anything that would, you know, for, for Bruce Dern about, about Schmidt sideways. I mean, you know, you look at a lot of the the films that he's done is that they're all really just about regular people who are uh, Mm. flawed, very, very flawed people and human, 
and, and I mean, uh, it's not to it's not to knock that air that side from like about Schmidt to Nebraska because all of those films are really wonderful. Oh yeah. But at the same time, it's like it'd be nice to see him get back to some of the vicious uh, political satire that he did in Citizen Ruth and Election. But, Absolutely. And I wonder, Michael Mann, what was the last film he did? Wasn't it that Isn't movie Black Hat? That the yeah, yeah. Was, it, was it? Oh God, Chris Hemsworth. Yes, that's right. I don't. I don't think that. I think that was one of those movies that kind of came and went. I think. Yeah, yeah, it really kind of was. Um, let's see, because yeah, I don't think he's done anything since. But uh, yeah, you know, and it, the thing is, it's like it's it's a shame because of the fact that. Um, he is such a good director. I mean, even like we haven't even talked about uh, Thief, which I personally oh, have not oh, seen. Oh, oh, oh. Uh, and I know I need to, and I'll probably Thief, make that. All point. you gotta do when you watch Thief, all you gotta do is watch Robert Trotsky, yeah. the late great Robert Trotsky. Um, you know, and at that time, I mean, that was like a movie that if that, if that came out today. I think that would, you know, it would it would click with audiences for whatever reason. Yeah. In 1981, when it came out, I it it kind of it, it's of course become a cult film, but I don't think it did very well when it first came out. But like, right. and it was around a time I don't think James Caan's film career was was going that well. I know he was having, I think he had some substance abuse problems around mm -hmm. that time. But uh, but it's a brilliant performance, and I think it's probably one of his best. And but yeah. like just the way that that story is told, but like really gritty and dirty and just you know, Robert Trotsky. Another example of like, you know, a, a guy who had been around for a while and plays this really menacing guy. And I think if it had had any type of marketing behind it, he would have been acknowledged with some, uh, an award, which he would have been, which would have been richly deserving of. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And, and I, I was, I, it it took rewatching. I mean, that's that's part of why I like the. I've been rewatching these movies as I've been going through the class of nineteen ninety nine because of the fact that rewatching these movies not only does it get my get fresh in my head to talk about, but it also it also gives me a chance to revisit them and see how I, and sort of see how I feel about the movie now and. Mm -hmm. I mean, The Insider is a movie that uh, rewatching it remind me exactly why it was it it was just a, immediately a great film for for me and to watch the first time around. And yeah, I mean, I I do remember thinking it was a really fantastic movie, and I was glad that I got a chance to see it in the theater. That's something. Seeing, well, and revisiting the movie again for me it was kind of like you know now you know being older and being uh, you know watching the news and you're wondering God like how many stories are out there that the network didn't go forward with right. because of a lawsuit or because of this and it's not like you know the old like Ben Bradley you know he would with all the president's men he would be like you know we can't publish this because we don't have enough yet we don't have. We don't have a smoking gun. We don't have the big thing. You know, mm -hmm. it's not going high enough that they had plenty of, of stuff. It's just uh, I mean, it's kind of like, you know, he's got uh, we got a story. We're not going to air it because, you know, it, it's 
we're going to get sued. Well, and it's funny. There are a couple of things that we haven't even talked about yet. Um, and one of them is the fact that it's like when, when Bergman meets Wygand, it has nothing to do with that, what that story of what that particular story is going to be. That story yeah. comes away comes from he he's just mean Wygan to get some uh scientific uh read, evidence here scientific or, yeah. reading on some evidence that's come into his possession from another uh tobacco company. Right. And that's how they even get involved, but also, this film isn't, you know, we've focused a lot on the journalism aspect of it, and it is the primary aspect of the movie, but the film is also about whistleblowing. Oh, yeah. And, and the toll, the psychological toll that that can take on somebody who makes that choice to, to whistleblow and to tell the truth about something that... It, it could very well, and in case of Wygand, it did quite honestly change his life mm -hmm. and what that decision means. And uh, that's, that's one of the, that, that's one of the uh, things that makes The Insider so interesting as well because it's, as much as it is about journalism, it's also about this subject. And it's about the subject of the journalism. And that's, that's the thing that's so... Uh, compelling about it because of the fact that if you don't have that connection with Wygand, then the movie loses something considerably. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Now, I mean, watching it again, you know, watching it as a father, that if if you know if you're put into that situation where you're in the midst of something that you know is bad, but you're held back, you can't say it. Uh, or if you do say something, you're going to get sued and your life is going to be put in danger. But it, it, it's it's kind of like, you know, it's like what I was saying before. It's like, you know, it's what makes you sleep at night and what can't. Like people like uh, Michael Gambon's character, he knows exactly what he's doing. Yeah. And he, he, he sleeps fine. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and there are people out there in our, you know, in the political landscape and corporations every day that do that. Mm -hmm. And you, and you just kind of, and that's what that's what I always wonder as like as an actor looking at it it's like you know you watch some of these people in the news and you just wonder like how do you sleep at night like yeah. you know I'd always wonder like you know Sarah Sanders you know she comes she would come out every day and say these things and it's just like you can't believe that but it's like uh, well and there's always the line that everybody says like uh, well God well what is what does forty five have on him or what does forty five have on her you know and yeah. it's like. It's a kind of a valid point because if, if someone does whistle blow, you know, 45 has the uh, he has lawyers or he'll go on and say something in a barrage of nasty treat. And then he'll get his followers to do the same thing or yeah. threats or anything like that. So that's the culture mm -hmm. that we're in, unfortunately. Yeah. Well, uh, before we wrap up, did you have anything more to uh, say about the movie that you wanted to bring up? <laughs> Just, um, no, I mean, everything we've touched upon, I mean, it's, uh, if anyone hasn't seen the film, highly recommend it. I mean, it's, mm -hmm. it's about two and a half hours long, but it, it, it doesn't feel long. Like Michael Mann's movies, like he is about, is almost three hours, I yeah. think, but, but you don't feel that length at all. I remember seeing that in the theater and it's like, 
oh my god, that's it. Like it's <laughs> it's a it's it's a it's a movie that you want more of, and uh, just uh, yeah. and the insider is the same thing. You want more about. Uh, about Bergman, about all of these characters and the story, and you want to know, um, you want to know what happens to them. But it's it's a it's a hell of a ride, and I highly recommend everybody yeah. see it. Well, Tim, thank you very much for joining me once again on the podcast. It's always great to uh, talk to you, and uh, always a pleasure. I definitely appreciate you joining me on the the uh, class of this class of nineteen ninety nine series. I'm doing where i'm looking back on uh movies from that year go 99 that's when i graduated from college so it was uh <laughs> it feels like a lifetime ago but no know, it, right? it was yeah i know it's well you blink and it's like like they have like there are movies that i think what there was a, a some movie that's celebrating the 20th anniversary uh oh no office space we were talking about oh, yeah. i can't believe that came out 20 years ago. I mean, it's, it, it's just wild that like, uh, or like that Shawshank came out 25 years ago. I mean, yeah. it's it, these movies, it feels like yesterday, but, uh, no, it's always a pleasure to talk with you, Brian, uh, talk movies. We could go all day on, uh, on, on movies. Mm -hmm. I'd like to thank Timothy Cox for joining me today to talk about the insider, uh, catch our discussion earlier in the year where we talked about American beauty and, uh, that, that was a really great discussion. Had a lot of different issues brought up during it, and uh, but the insider has a lot going for it. And if you didn't see it in theaters, or if you haven't seen it, and especially if you haven't seen it and you're a Michael Mann fan, I highly recommend it because it is a is one of his best movies, if not maybe his best movie. Uh, coming up on the uh, class of 1999, we've got some more comedy, got some animated discussions. And we're also going to be going into uh, Biv Horror as October uh, comes around. For now, though, this is uh, Brian Scuttle with Sonic Cinema at www.sonic-cinema.com. Hit us up on patreon.com backslash Sonic Cinema. You'll see a lot of early access reviews for movies like The Insider, which I'm reviewing for the first time prior to the release of those reviews with in conjunction to the podcast. Um, for now, uh, thank you very much for joining me, and I hope you have a good day. Thank you.